God is giving Moses the commandments and he, and he says, do not boil a kid in his mother's milk. So Moses says, oh, does that mean that we can't eat milk and meat together? And God says, I said, don't boil a kid in his mother's milk. And Moses said, oh, does that mean we need to use different silverware and we can't mix the silverware uh, when we're having the meat, uh, when we're having a meal and of his meat or of his milk? And God said, uh, don't boil a kid in his mother's milk. And Moses says, oh, that must mean that after um, having um, meat, you have to wait six hours till, uh, till you have uh, uh, a milk product. And so then God says, all right, Moses, have it your way. A little bit of business here at the front end of the Cultural Hall. Uh, there are many who have become Patreon saints of the Cultural Hall, and it's great. And thank you, every single one of you, over 100 now, by the way, who are able to get uh, the videos from these episodes and also the loving and playful banter behind the scenes, plus all the catalog back to the very first episode. But there are several of you who listen who do not do that. And what I would love, contact at theculturalhall.com. If you, for whatever reason, don't do it, let me know what that reason is. It's not worth it for me. I don't pay for any uh, shows available in podcast form. Uh, You haven't offered merch yet. Whatever the thing may be, I would love to know what stands in the way for you. No no reason too big, no reason too small, no reason too ridiculous. I have posted this on social media before, but figured I would make this call out here in this episode. Uh, it has nothing to do with this episode, by the way. Uh, a great, funny, informative, and different kind of episode for the Cultural Hall. I hope you enjoy it, but I also hope that you'll take a moment and email me and let me know your feelings and thoughts on the Patreon thing. Okay? Is that a deal? Can we do it? All right, let's get this episode started. It's time for another episode of the Cultural Hall, and I'm excited for this one. A friend of the show, Brian Whitney, uh, reached out and he said, Hey, you know what? There's this great book that's coming out from uh, Coford Books that's called The Learning of the Jews, What Latter-day Saints Can Learn from Jewish religious experience. And I said, I'm interested. Can we do it? And he said, well, yeah, absolutely. There's uh, two editors that are on this project. Uh, Trevin Hatch, uh, a Bible religious studies and Middle East specialist in the Lee Library at BYU. Uh, That's one of them. And Leonard J. Greenspoon, who holds the Klutznik Chair in Jewish Civilization at Creighton. Those are the two editors, and they join us here in this episode of the Cultural Hall. Welcome, you guys. Hi. Glad to be here. Uh, I need to know, uh, and uh, forgive me that I don't know, uh, but Leonard, you hold the Klutznik chair. Who is Klutznik? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, Phil Klutznik, uh, it's named for Phil Klutznik. Uh, he was a native, I'll give you the short version. He was a native of Kansas City, uh, happened to know Harry Truman when Harry Truman was in Kansas City, which becomes important later on. Anyway, uh, he went to a school in Lincoln, University of Nebraska Lincoln. And then in the late 20s, went to law school at Creighton. And uh, what's important to remember, and which we tend to forget now, is that up through World War II, and in some places even beyond World War II, uh, there were quotas on the number of Jews who would be accepted at major universities, really? and sometimes even regional universities. And so uh, Phil Klutznik knew that he would be accepted for um to be in the law school at Creighton, and in fact he was. And then afterwards, he uh, he had a number of positions that he held, including uh, Secretary of Commerce for one year under Jimmy Carter, uh, Ambassador of the United Nations, uh, and probably what he's most famous for is Water Tower Place mm-hmm. in uh, North Michigan Avenue, the so-called Miracle Mall in Chicago. Mm-hmm. That was in fact the first vertical mall uh, and of course, set the pace for many others. Uh, and he had a distinguished career in addition in um, service. He was president of International B'nai B'rith and then decided that uh, to honor his experience with Creighton, he actually donated the money to start the law library, which is named after him. And then he donated this chair in Jewish civilization at, at Creighton and what's sort of interesting about it, Creighton is a Jesuit Catholic school, uh, that the Jewish Studies Chair was established 20 years before Chair in Catholic Studies at Creighton. Go huh. figure. Huh. Uh, and, and so I've been here 
since I've been there, actually, in, in, at, at Creighton since the late 90s. So give people an idea of who you are. Obviously, it's prestigious to be uh, uh, someone who holds the chair at any university, certainly there at Creighton. Uh, but how how, and who are you? What what uh, have you studied throughout your life and, and what brings you to where you're at today? Thank you. Thank you for asking. I'll give you the, the brief version. I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, went to undergraduate school uh, at University of Richmond, which interestingly enough is a Southern Baptist uh, related university, didn't have any particular problems. My first year out of college, I spent on a Fulbright studying in Italy. And then when I came back, this will be ancient history to many of you, but many of us remember it directly. Uh, we had the draft. And uh, so instead of um, serving in possibly in Vietnam, I taught elementary school for two years uh, in an all black school. I was the first Caucasian at all who went there. Then I went to graduate school and I started in, uh, at, in Harvard, Harvard graduate school and I was uh, in classics, but I switched to Near Eastern languages, uh, which is, you can, because it's not a program in, the, in Harvard college uh, graduate school in religion, but that's how I got into the study of the, the Bible and the, the connective thread, if you will, was the Septuagint because I had a classics background and the Septuagint, which is the first translation of the Hebrew Bible done by Jews beginning around 275 BC, or I would say BCE. And then I worked through that. And um, then, I, then I got my first job teaching at uh, Clemson in South Carolina, Clemson University, which is the, the state university, uh, the land grant university. And I taught there for 20 years and was, was perfectly happy. And then uh, Creighton made me the proverbial, you know, offer you can't refuse. Uh -huh. <laughs> and uh, so I've, I've been very happily uh, settled there. And uh, I, a couple of things beyond that. One of them is that we host a, uh, a symposium every, every fall on a different topic related to Jewish studies. And although we had to miss last year because of the pandemic, we were turning now to have been 33 years uh, since this symposium has been going on. And it's every year it's a different topic. It's been Jews and humor. It's been um, Jews and women. Uh, it's been the last one we did was Jews and gender. The next one we're doing this fall is Jews and urban life. And it's really a, a long standing ongoing conference. And what I'm very proud of is the fact that this, everybody's a specialist, but they need to direct their remarks to a general audience, not just to fellow specialists. And that's, that's certainly nothing wrong with that. So I've edited those volumes over the years. And then I just started my interest in the Septuagint with being the first Bible translation to pretty much studying Bible translations in all kinds of different cultures and all kinds of different environments. And then I, I discovered that, whoa, there are a lot of Jewish Bible translations, uh, most of which we don't hear much about either as a member of the Jewish community or frankly uh, in, in the academic world. So uh, last year I published my latest book, which was the first book length study of Jewish Bible translations. Okay, so meanwhile, I, I've, I've been very fortunate that I've been able to sort of follow, I don't know if we call them my whims or my dreams, so, for example, I have always liked comic strips, and I've studied um, the Bible in comic strips and Jews in comic strips. And it's sort of fun because you get to take what you like and then, oh, yeah, I'm not just reading these comic strips for fun. Oh, no, it's an academic world. <laughs> At the same time, you don't, you don't want to because we academicians can ruin almost anything. So I want to <laughs> ruin the experience of, of we can do that, uh, of, of, of comic strips. And then I was you know, pretty much involved, uh, you know, traveling conferences. And um, so I had the opportunity of, oh, it's been years ago now, uh, to do a series of lectures at Brigham Young and uh, got to know a number of, of the individuals affiliated with it. Am I, is it okay right now just to quickly say, to the best of my memory, how Trevin and I met? No, uh, hang on real quick. We'll get there. We'll get there, right. I promise. 
So uh, you introduced then to us, obviously, Trevin, who uh, who also, I'm sure, has a storied career, but a different path, certainly, from what you have experienced, Leonard. Give us a little bit of background on you, Trevin. So I'm uh, I'm from Utah County. So right there, I'm born and raised there. Right from right there, people say, okay, that's boring. Yeah. Right? But you know, for me, it was fun being right uh, two miles from BYU, went to sports camps, uh, run-of-the-mill Latter-day Saint experience. And then when I got back from my mission in Orlando, mm -hmm. finished at BYU in history and ancient Near Eastern studies, basically the world of the Bible kind of stuff. And I was, I was a little bit naive. And so were my classmates. You know, this is in the early 2000s when, you know, we didn't know much about the academy. And we go out on the mission. We read the Bible. We start for two years. You're having religious conversations with all kinds of people. And so I came back and I said, you know, I'm going to be a scholar of the Hebrew Bible or New Testament. I'm going to be a biblical scholar. But uh, and a lot of my classmates said the same thing. The problem is, is I'm very inquisitive and I was emailing and calling uh, Ph.D. programs and graduate programs all throughout my undergrad degree. And I could quickly I was just listening and, and, and watching. And I determined that a Latter-day Saint will not who specializes in the Bible will not get a job. That's my perception. And so I kind of freaked out and I jumped ship from ancient Near Eastern studies to history because I wanted to be a little broader. And I thought, well, I'll just I'll go into Jewish studies. That's not any more practical, but I thought it was. <laughs> there, you know, there's a big Jewish experience, you know, but anyway, so I ended up going to a master's degree in at Baltimore Hebrew University. And it was fascinating. It was um 20 miles north of about 20 miles north of downtown Baltimore, where you had a, a population of 100,000 Jews, a lot of them Orthodox. This is a little university where all of my classmates, all of my, all the faculty were Jewish. Curriculum was Jewish, everything, and I had uh, a great experience there. The problem is, is I didn't get into a PhD program because it was right after the recession. Money had dried up, and it was the worst possible year to get in, and so I got rejected to several of them, and I was. I was really disheartened and everything. So I came back to Utah Valley University and taught for two years, taught ethics and religion, early Judaism, uh, the world of the Bible stuff. And then I was, I determined to leave the ancient world, leave biblical studies and just try to find anything, any scholar in the country, in any field who studied religion and Judaism. And I was looking at comparative literature and political science and sociology, every, history. I found this guy at LSU down in the bayou who's, who's a, a social scientist who studied Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, families, you know, family relations. And I called him and talked to him. And he says, yeah, I have a whole bunch of data on Jewish families that nobody's done anything with. You can come out and study with me. So I did that. And But before I started that program, I wasn't sure if I would get funding. There was a period of about two months there. And so I found this doctoral program at the Spurtis Institute of Jewish Studies in Chicago. It's where I met Leonard. And you fly out there a couple times a year and you have your seminars, your, you do your in-class work, and then you fly home. Everybody flies home. And there's people from all over the world, all over the United States, that, that we fly home and then we, do our paper, we write our papers for a couple months. Mm -hmm. I like that experience so much that I just kept going back, even though I got into LSU and was doing that. So effectively, I had two different doctoral degrees I was pursuing at the same time. <laughs> And I just thought, you know, why, why not? Let's just, and it was all Jewish studies. I was studying American Jews, that, that experience at LSU. And I was at, at Spurtis, I was back into studying the world of the Bible and early Judaism. And it was, it was a blast. And so anyway, long story short, I get a job at, at BYU right when I finished at LSU in 2015, a library position opened up at BYU. And I, at first I thought, well, that's kind of hokey. I mean, librarianship, that's kind of I go get two doctoral degrees to be a librarian, but then I looked into it and it was a faculty position. It was a very academic position where I help students do their research, I help faculty do their research and I do my own research. So it worked out very well and I've published a lot on Judaism and even a little bit on Islam, a little bit on Latter-day Saint stuff, but uh, it's been a great experience. So Leonard, is that how you remember sort of meeting Trevin? Uh, yes. And I just wanted to add one thing for the benefit of those who are uh, with us, um, because again, most people today would not think, oh, that was a time, well, within my lifetime, uh, where Jews were discriminated against, so couldn't get into institutions. And so one 
way of dealing with that, mainly beginning in the early 1900s or the very end of the 1800s, were that Jews began uh, academic institutions for the study of Judaism of their own because Judaism was not being taught as an academic subject and Jews were not allowed on the faculty and there were very few Jewish students. So the reason I mentioned that is um, Trevin talked about the Baltimore Hebrew College, which later became the Baltimore Hebrew University. That was one of those schools that was started hmm. along those lines. It no longer exists as an, an individual uh, institution of its own. The one in Cleveland, it no longer exists as an individual institution of its own. Dropsy, named for the founder in Philadelphia, no longer exists. Spurtus in Chicago, which is indeed where we met and is named for a family named Spurtus, continues to exist as an independent Jewish studies graduate school. And they've also branched out into a lot of uh, community, like training community leaders within the Jewish, within the Jewish world. And um, so when Trevin and I met, I had been involved in Spurtus, I, I don't know how many decades, uh, and it is just, it, it took off. Uh, if you were to see, and I'm, I'm not a Spurtus spokesman per se, but nonetheless, uh, Spurtus has an incredible location uh, right by Grant Park, which means it overlooks yeah. uh, the, the, the river. And it was in one building, uh, which was old, almost looks like an old academic building. And then they built next door this grand new structure, which is where we're able to um, attend classes now. And so in a way, Spurtus, uh, along with uh, there's one school in New York and one still left in Philadelphia. They're sort of survivors of an earlier age, and they've been able because you could study Judea Jewish studies and study almost anywhere now. But they've maintained uh, a, a unique positions in their communities and in the academic world. And uh, just as Trevin was saying, with the experience in Baltimore where almost, if not everybody else in the, on the, in the student body was Jewish, that's also been the case at, at Spurtus. I mean, it's mm -hmm. open to anybody. Sure. But uh, Trevin distinguished himself in many ways. I mean, because, oh, here's a guy, a Latter-day Saints guy, and a lot of people probably had not had much interaction with, with, with people who, who are Latter-day Saints, but also exactly what he said as an inquisitive mind and um, carrying on, as I found out, carrying on two, effectively two PhD programs at once. Doesn't get much better. No, no. I want to take a break real quick. And when we come back, I want to start to dive into some of those things. I know you, that there's an entire book about the things that the Latter-day Saints can learn from Jewish observation. I want to get into a couple of them uh, and and maybe we cue it up in sort of a fun way where it's a, uh, a prompt and then response between the two of you guys. We'll come back and we'll do that in the second block of the Cultural Hall. Hi, friends. Dan the Laptop Man here from PC Laptops. I get a lot of emails with feedback from customers. Here's one. Dear Dan, I just had the best experience ever. I bought a computer from Shane at your State Street store. I asked several what I thought were really stupid questions. Shane was super courteous and made me feel comfortable through the whole process. People need to understand how important it is to support a local company, especially when your experience is so good. PC Laptops really does love me. Signed, Satisfied. I love hearing feedback like that. It really just gives me the chills. It's the whole reason why I got into the computer business in the first place. You can get a brand new PC Laptops desktop for as low as $7.99, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. That means if anything goes wrong, we're going to take care of you. Just check us out at PCLaptops.com. That's PCLaptops.com. At PC Laptops, we really do love you. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, if you have not yet become a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall, I encourage you to do so. Go to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. Uh, your monthly donation helps us be able to have the Zoom calls like what we're doing, uh, be able to pay for a website hosting and all of those things. Uh, it also allows you to be a part of that secret but not sacred Facebook group where all the Patreon saints hang out. Uh, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. So, Trevin, let me ask you this. Uh, you guys get to know each other. You know, you, you, you are with the same organization, the Spurtus organization. But what is it that 
uh, allows you guys to sort of walk into collaborating on this book? Well, what happened was I had a, so with the origins of this project, I had this idea for a while. I would like to get some Jewish scholars together and some Latter-day Saint scholars together and have this kind of dialogue, but, but not a traditional dialogue. And I can tell you in a minute, I'll tell you about um, my thought process and how that started, but I wanted to piggyback on something that Leonard said. This will help us transition into that because when I came to BYU, these two experiences were sort of illustrated in my mind why this type of book was necessary. When I got to BYU, I had been here for like maybe three or four weeks and I was sitting in an office of a colleague. He's much older than me, but he, and he was trying to probably give me a little jazz. Like he was trying to show me that I'm the rookie, right? Mm-hmm. And because I am, yeah, I finished at LSU and now I'm at Spurtis and, and uh, he, he started laughing and he's, he's a friend of mine. He wasn't trying to be mean spirited, but he started laughing and he said, Spurtis, what, what is that? So is that like an acronym? Does that mean like something like special people everywhere, you know, and he, and I, I didn't even crack a smile and, and it was a little bit offensive because, and he didn't know this, but just as Leonard said, some of these Jewish schools, the reason why they existed, why they came about in the late or sometime in the, you know, the 19th, 20th, early 20th century is because Jews were not getting into Harvard and Yale and some of these other East coast schools uh, as much. I mean, there was an anti uh, Jewish sentiment, just as, just as this largely Protestant country was anti-Catholic in some sense. And so these institutions, Baltimore Hebrew and Dropsy and Jewish Theological Seminary and Hebrew Union College and Spurtis, like I don't know about all of them, but many of them were born out of or because of anti-Semitism to help Jews, train Jews um, and educate uh, the Jewish population. And so not that I would expect him to know that, but it's important that like we we come to BYU and we tend to navel gaze. Mm -hmm. We stare at people, we write about Latter-day Saints two Latter-day Saints, you know, we, and it's Latter-day Saints writing this, two Latter-day Saints. And so that was one experience. Another one was after this book started to get organized, and I can tell you a little bit more about that in a minute, but I met with a, a person in the community who was involved in a publisher. And so I went to him and I said, here's this idea. We want to, down the road, we want to publish it. Here's my ideas for some chapters. Is it possible that we could maybe publish this with your, you know, your, your publisher? And he looked at it and he said, and he started to immediately analyze. He's like, well, we don't want this topic and this topic. We want temple and we want priesthood. And we and it was sh- trying to shape it only for what Latter-day Saints would care about. And then we can invite Jews to talk about that. We tend to do that a lot. Mm-hmm. One chapter in there that I wanted to talk about uh, sexual ethics, the Jewish approach and the, the approach of the rabbis of sexuality and sexual ethics. It's very important. And he looked at that and he said, I don't know. He kind of got a furrow in his brow and he said, uh, I don't know why we don't need this chapter. And frankly, I don't know what we could possibly learn about sexuality from Jews. So immediately, I'm, I, I couldn't believe I was hearing that. And I thought, you know, uh, that we, this is why we need a book like this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so that, th- those two experiences helped me. And so what, basically what, when I was at LSU, I was talking to, a, a, we talk about this in the book, but this girl was from Saudi Arabia. She was a, a classmate of mine. And we were talking about this project. I don't remember how it came up, but I said, the idea is to get Jewish studies scholars together and, and talk about their own experience, whatever they want to talk about, scripture or authority or whatever. And then Latter-day Saints can come along after and then on their own terms, look at what their experience and try to analyze and engage with them on any strategies or mentality that they have that we might have missed or that, that, or that can help us enhance our own religious experience. Mm-hmm. And she looked at me and she said, you know, I, I, I'm Muslim and I come from Saudi Arabia, that kind of open-mindedness would never fly in Saudi Arabia. She's like, my family asked me all the time why I came to a godless country to study religion and family life. Mm-hmm. And that, that was kind of that first discussion where I articulated that project to someone. And then I came to BYU and then it started, the ball started getting rolling and I contacted Leonard about the possibility and he liked the idea. And then we together, from there, we started inviting scholars and then um, and then off it went. But that's that's how we came together of this project and how it got started. I appreciate the distinction. When I saw the sort of uh, press release about it, um, what I immediately thought, having not read but maybe a line, I was like, oh, this is going to be a project where there's a Jewish person who has converted to Latter-day Saint, and they're going to tell about their experience through that. And that's not what this is. That's a very important distinction to, to, to note that it is 
you know, the Jewish experience, but then what um, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints can then uh, learn, glean, uh, be able to take into their own religious practice. So I'm wondering, this is po- sort of putting you guys on the spot a little bit, um, but I'm wondering if there, if we could, even if it's uh, one that is mentioned within the book or maybe one that would personally apply uh, to the two of you where you could walk this out, what, what would be um, a religious observance for you, Leonard, and could you share some of those things with us? And then, Trevin, could you kind of break it down in a way that, that for those that are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who have heard Leonard's experience can, can sort of see what that is? Am I getting the premise of how the book is? Is that basically the setup? Yes. Okay. And I'm thinking you, at this point, you don't want me necessarily or even specifically to talk about the chapter I did, which is not on religious observance, but it's on Jewish humor. But you want me pick a different topic right now and, yeah. and start again. And yeah. that's what I'll do. Absolutely. Okay. So we'll, we'll talk about uh, the dietary laws. So um, within the Hebrew Bible, three times the, the, the admonition, do not boil a kid in his mother's milk is found. It's found three times that. What does it mean? That's a lot of, uh, what's the origin of that? There's been a lot of debate about that, discussion about it. In traditional Jewish circles, two things have happened. One is, uh, traditional, I mean, going back to the period of the Talmud, second, third, fourth century uh, in the common era. Uh, this is a command of God, and you don't necessarily need to figure out all the, all the details, why you can eat this, why you can't eat this. The rules are laid out here. Let's do them. That's fine. But Judaism, as we have it, is not the Bible just brought up to date. We have 2,000 years of rabbinic interpretation. So the fact that this expression occurs three times led the rabbis uh, to ask, what does it mean? And they determined that it meant you can't eat milk and meat products together. Uh, and But what does that mean? Uh, well, if you have uh, a milk product, uh, you can just wait a, a matter of seconds and, and have a meat product. But if you have a meat product, you have to wait a certain number of hours, four, six, before you can have, uh, um, after the milk, after the meat, before you can have milk. And, uh, and, and how you slaughter the animals, which animals you can eat. Uh, all of this developed into what we call kashrut or uh, the dietary laws. And um, it is still the regular practice among observant traditional Jews, which would include most Orthodox Jews, but as well, uh, many conservative Jews. And um, there's the strict observance of it. And then there are all sorts of permutations. Because one of the things that we point out in the introduction is, is it isn't, there's very, very rarely is there a Jewish view on something which every single person who is Jewish would tend to accept, or every person who has been Jewish. Because of, we're, we're religion without, um, uh, there's no code that you have to agree to. There's not, nothing we all have to say, oh yes, I accept this and then I'm Jewish. It's, it's a combination of a nation and a people. So just to quickly mention, there are permutations of this. So I will admit the following. Uh, when I am at my house, my, uh, we have a house in Connecticut and we have a place in Omaha, keep strictly the, the dietary laws, only have kosher meat. Uh, we have one set of dishes for milk products and silverware, one for meat products, a whole different set of dishes for Passover, every, everything. When I go out to eat, however, uh, I will not follow the dietary laws in the sense that I would eat a, a cheeseburger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, and uh, I mean, a real cheeseburger, not one that, well, I guess these days, real cheeseburgers cannot have the meat doesn't have to necessarily, the burger doesn't have to be meat and the cheese doesn't have to be milky, but <laughs> sort of the old, and, and I'll do that, but, but I will not eat pork. And uh, among the other dietary um, uh, considerations, I won't eat shellfish. Uh, so somebody might say to me, oh, you're being hypocritical, but no, I'm not being hypocritical because I'm telling you exactly, this is my observance. Uh, and so the diet, and not everybody, among Jews, especially the more reformed Jews, feel as if there's any particular validity to uh, um, dietary restrictions or dietary considerations anymore. That was then, this is now. Uh, And so I, 
I don't know if there's anything analogous within the uh, Latter-day Saints tradition. So I guess that's the way how Trevin will bounce, will bounce off of this, right? We help. Yeah. So, so Trevin, as I hear that, I, I think that this has value for a few things. One, I think that there are a lot of uh, Latter-day Saints who don't actually know about Jewish culture or observance in anything. So I think on a very base level, Leonard, I appreciate knowing that, uh, about that because I didn't know too much about the milk and meat and the you know all those different things. So I think it has value there. But then as we do and step into this next process where Trevin, I could I could see on his face he was thinking through how he's going to do this. What what then as we put this in the 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 context and the confines of, of what this book is, then what is your re- response or what how could we anticipate like what if there this was a particular chapter in the book what would it sound like okay so here's what would happen in fact what's interesting is we had two or three scholars who bailed on the book because they didn't know how to respond one person said he punched his keyboard he's like i love this stuff but i don't know how to respond and a couple other people did the same thing and i think the reason latter-day saints the, the inclination is to or the tendency is to say okay wow, look at this experience. We have the same experience, like if, if indeed we do. And we have a, a, a dietary law also. Wow, we're the same. This is great. We understand each other. And let me tell you how we're similar. That, and we, we told the authors not to do that, but, to, to, but the, some of them still did. And it, okay, it, 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 turned out, it turned out okay. It, you know, a lot of them are fun to read. But if I was responding to that, I would say, okay, um, there's a, an original principle, like a founding principle, whatever that is. And in this case, don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. And so as a Latter-day Saint, I would say, okay, where did that principle come from? Is this, and Latter-day Saints, we already do this. Is that 100% divine? Is that like 30%? I mean, it did, did God sort of infuse these ideas into the mind of Moses or, or collectively whoever else? And then how did that develop and evolve? And how did it take, how did culture sort of add to it? And how did it grow as a snowball? And, and then the, the rabbis later, after the time of Jesus, they're commenting on it and it becomes a lot, many laws and they're trying to wrestle with it and work with it so that they can observe it. And the problem is a lot of conservative Christians, whether it's evangelicals or Latter-day Saints tend to be very conservative. We tend to say, well, that's, that's odd. That's like, why are Jews so concerned with all this minutia? Like I hear that all the time. And what I would do in a chapter is I'd say, okay, what we have the word of wisdom and Let's, let's follow the same sort of trajectory that happened in Judaism. We've got a founding principle. Okay, uh, bar, mild barley drink, you can drink it. Okay, well, that's beer. Well, we don't drink that. We don't drink beer. But it was permitted, you know, in the early days. And we have don't drink wine or don't do this or don't do that. And then so we have that ideal where it re- originally wasn't a commandment. It was just sort of a, it was just a, a word of wisdom, not by commandment or by constraint. So then we go along and we see Joseph. Joseph is drinking wine, right? He drinks wine in Carthage mm-hmm. and does a little bit of that. And so we see a founding principle and we have to decide, okay, is this divine? Is this um, sort of part divine, part cultural? How does it develop? Where does it become a, a commandment? Who gave that commandment? Who, who said it was a commandment? Did that person have authority? So when we talk about authority. There's another chapter where Heber J. Grant says, you know, now we have to, I think it was Grant who said it's now a commandment and we have to you have to abide by all this. And so I would just sort of bounce off that and say, where are the boundaries of a law from God? And then how, where are the parameters for how we can wrestle with this? Where, where is there a human element to this? Where is there a divine element to this? And even broadly, how does this act as a boundary marker or, or an identity marker for Latter-day Saints as it does for Jews? Because in, in everybody knows, or most everybody knows that Jews don't eat pork or they, they don't do these few things, but there's actually a whole bunch of laws, but that becomes the sort of uh, the, what's the, that that's the one sort of icon thing, like iconic, like idea, mm-hmm. no poor. Latter-day Saints, we have the same thing. We have this huge section of the word of wisdom, but it's been distilled down to just an identity marker, no tobacco and alcohol, no drugs, no, you know, beer, no coffee, no coffee. Yeah. And that's how, it, that's how it stays. So how does religious identity develop? And how, how, do we, uh, how do we make sense of this? And it's just sort of a wrestle. And we watch how Jews wrestled with it and how it's become debated. And some people eat pork and some people don't. And it's, it depends on their level of observance. And what are the implications of those who do or don't? And so that's how I would do it. And I would just 
focus on the Latter-day Saint experience while tapping into the Jewish experience. So then let me ask you, Leonard, what value do you feel like that has where we've introduced this principle and now we've heard Trevin sort of, you know, the, the, the reply, the response to it. What value does that have to uh, a Jewish person who would read that? What value do you feel like that could have for a Latter-day Saint person who reads it? Or let's remove Jews and Latter-day Saints from it altogether. What's the value for just you know, a, a Baptist reader, a Catholic reader to, to hear this sort of dialogue uh, occurring? I'm, 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 I'm glad you asked because that actually deals with the book. But I was reminded, I don't mean to hijack this. But, so I did the chapter on, uh, on Jewish humor. And Sean Tucker, I believe that's it, who did the response, you know, um, it, my, my chapter was, I've forgotten, um, in whatever it was, and Sean's chapter was why we have no Grouchos as Groucho Marx among Mormons, uh, among Latter-day Saints. But that was a, a, a joke that I started with in that that fits perfectly into what we're talking about. And I don't really tell jokes well, but I'll try to do it. Um, <laughs> God is giving Moses the commandments, and he, and he says, do not boil a kid in his mother's milk. So Moses says, oh, does that mean that we can't eat milk and meat together? And God says, I said, don't boil a kid in his mother's milk. And Moses said, oh, does that mean we need to use different silverware and we can't mix the silverware uh, when we're having the meat, uh, when we're having a meal and of his meat or of its milk? And God said, uh, don't boil a kid in his mother's milk. And Moses says, oh, that must mean that after um, having... Um, Meat, you have to wait six hours till uh, till you have um, uh, a milk product, and so then God says, "All right, Moses, have it your way." <laughs> now, when I described this, uh, when I wrote it, but I said afterwards, uh, it might seem sacrilegious, uh, but it, but in fact, it encapsulates a debate within Judaism uh, that's probably as old as Judaism is. We actually get, I think, a sense of this debate in some of the New Testament parables and um, conversations that that Jesus has. And what's interesting about it is that in the the Talmud, the collection of uh, pretty much authoritative Jewish traditions from the second to the fifth century, there's there's a, a similar story uh, where there's a debate over something. And one of the rabbis who's debating it finally appeals to God and says, wait a minute, God, what did you mean? Uh, aren't I right? And God says, I've given the law to you. I've given the laws to you. It's up to you to figure out what they mean. So this idea of uh, what I would call a healthy, uh, hopefully a, a healthy debate about this is, is something which characterizes Judaism at a lot of levels. Hmm. Uh, so, so again, if someone said to me, do you keep kosher? That's not a question everybody would ask every day. And then what would I, I would say, if, if I had the time, I would say exactly what I said to you. Mm -hmm. And that person could easily say, no, that means you're not keeping kosher. Uh, and, and, but the, ultimately, we don't have, uh, a well, we have authorities, some rabbis have quite a following, but there's no, no one who speaks for all Jews. And um, so, one of the things to keep in mind, I think, which goes um, beyond just this topic or just beyond Jews and Mormons, at least from my perspective, is what does it mean to be authentically Jewish? What does it mean to be authentically uh, a, a Latter-day Saint? And for a lot of people, authenticity means traditional. Mm -hmm. But in fact, the tradition evolves. And um, so I don't. I would not judge someone to be inauthentically Jewish if they chose to eat pork. Just one, you know, I mean, and I think these matters go far beyond just this particular issue and just beyond Jews and uh, uh, Latter-day Saints. The one thing I would say, though, is uh, if, if someone who, who is Jewish, if, if they decide to eat pork, I would want that decision to be the result of some conversation it could just be an internal conversation. Right. Yes, right. this is the biblical laws, but these biblical laws were, 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 were um, uh, you know, before we knew about trichnosis. So you didn't want to eat a pig because that would cause you in shellfish. They harbor all these. I don't think that has anything to do with the origins of dietary laws. 
But if someone reasoned that way, Jewish, and this is what they came up with, that's fine. Uh, I don't think that just saying, oh, it doesn't matter. To me, that's not a valid way of wrestling with these issues, but it's the, it's the process. And that's what I think is so important. It's the process and people can, people of goodwill, if I can use that term, will use the process and come up with different conclusions. And I, I try, and I, I like this to be considered a, a laudable thing. I try to be descriptive, but not evaluative. Sure. Someone goes through the process, but on the other hand, I'd like us to be at least reasonably thoughtful about it. Uh, I'm not sure I totally answered the question. No, but- I, I think I think I think I think that you did, and you certainly queued up. Uh, an, maybe even the last question that I want to ask you guys, but I want to take another break real quick. Uh, when we come back in the third block, uh, there is a question we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall, and I got a couple other ones I'll pepper in there as well. We'll do that coming back in the third block. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, remember you can always get in contact with us if you have a great guest suggestion, or maybe you think that you would be the great guest here in the show. Uh, you can email us, contact at theculturalhall.com. A simple and easy, you can put guest suggestion in the subject line, or if you really like this episode with Leonard and with Trevin, you can say, I really like this episode, and then feel free to wax on in the body of your email about how great this episode was. Uh, those emails always welcome as well. And you can give <laughs> us a review wherever you're getting this episode. Uh, make sure that you give us the five stars. If you have one stars that you'd like to share, keep that to yourself. Thank you very much. Now, uh, Trevin and Leonard, when we talk about religions, uh, specifically two different religions, or we talk about religion in general, there is a a um, either truth claims and or our way is the right way, and that's nice that you think that a, a, another way, right? We say, uh, particularly within you know the the Latter Day Saint um, vernacular, you will oftentimes hear people bear testimony that this is you know, the true and living church of Christ and, and, and bear testimony to those things. I don't want to get into the intricacies of that, but I would be curious as we back that out in a bigger conversation, talking about what we can learn from each other. What do we miss when we don't take the opportunity to learn about other religions? I'd like that first from Trevin, from your perspective, and then Leonard, uh, I think you'll get the last word within what we do today to, to share why it's valuable for you to learn about uh, uh, other religions. So go ahead, Trevin. One of the things, a question I get all the time, whether it's at BYU Education Week, where this is a, this is an event where you get many, uh, there's all kinds of people, different ages, but the, the, the majority of them seem to be the baby boomer generation, like 50, 50 and older. And sometimes you have hundreds of people in these classes. I usually get this question in those settings, but I also get it in when I teach at BYU. And that is, what, why does this matter? And when you're talking about all this uh, history and this context, and why does it matter? What I do is I put up on the screen a puzzle of like the Statue of Liberty or something. And the puzzle has all these missing pieces. And that's, you can just see the Statue of Liberty, but you don't see the con, some of the pieces are missing and you don't see the outside context. And then I put the next picture up and the whole puzzle is there with with only a few pieces missing and I say that Latter-day Saints tend to think that we have all the answers and so when we're when we're viewing the world or or like the worldview and the cosmos eternity or whatever it is we, we think that we have the full picture minus a few things really what I think we have is the other picture where you have the main principle and but we're missing all kinds of context and so when we learn about history or we learn about Jews or even like Buddhism or something that's in a, completely in a different context, we shouldn't say that doesn't matter. What does this have to do with my my own life? Because we don't know what will affect us. We don't know what what connections we can make. We don't know what how God can inspire us uh, 
based on some information. Like if you study Buddhism for three months, there's going to be things in there that will spark your, will, will hit you and allow you to be uh, introspective. Uh, so that's one thing we miss it. If we try to draw boundaries around what's important and what's not important and, and therefore, and we don't need that other religion. We don't need their perspective. We have everything. So then there's one, let me just share one experience that'll sort of illustrate this. There's a, I have a Jewish friend. She came a couple of years ago to Utah County. And in November, she's an Orthodox Jew she was looking for some work for, you know, for business. And she wanted to, it was actually in relation to her learning about Latter-day Saints. And she wanted to participate in a family home evening, which for Latter-day Saints historically is on Monday night. And we get together and we read scripture and have devotionals. And this, she, she found a family that would let her come in and they, and she sat there and, and witnessed this experience. And a seminary girl, a teenage girl was giving the lesson and she, it was near Thanksgiving. So she pulled up Luke 17, where Jesus is healing lepers. He healed 10 lepers. And if you remember, nine of them went to the temple and then one of them, a, a Samaritan came back and praised and thanked Jesus. And then and this girl said, you know, I testify that this principle of, of gratitude, this is her just telling me this. I testify that this principle is true. And I also know that if we show gratitude, especially to Christ, that we will get extra blessings. And this Orthodox woman who had been trained to read her texts very carefully, very closely, as, a, as being raised as an Orthodox Jew, she, she was not shy to jump in and ask questions. Latter-day Saints, we tend to be a little bit passive aggressive and we don't want to raise our hand. We don't want to disagree. But there's many Jews, many, I've seen many Jews, in, even in the class, who are not afraid to do that. So she jumps in. She says, wait, I, I, this doesn't make sense. I have a few questions. Number one, is there, are there different ways to show gratitude? Because in Judaism, in Jewish law or, or, or custom, you would have those nine who went to the temple are actually going to the temple in order to praise God and to, to thank God and, and to, to worship. And so that's uh, that's one question I have. The other one is this idea that if you do something, you'll get more blessings, almost a prosperity gospel. She said that's an interesting idea in and of itself, but it's not necessarily in Judaism. It's you do something because you love God. And so I'm curious about these ideas. And the, the, the mother of the home said, well, that's very interesting. I've never thought of any of that. And then the girl, uh, she seemed to be uh, a little bit taken aback, like this was like sort of a, a contentious thing. And she says, well, I, I want to share my testimony and, and to, that this is about gratitude and we do get extra blessings for, you know, for, for doing these, these commandments and her, she was uh, sort of dumbfounded. She's like, I, I, I didn't know if I had overstepped. I'm, I'm, I was just, the text doesn't say extra blessings. I'm just wondering what, uh, where she's getting this. And you can kind of see the difference. A Jew who had been trained to read very carefully, stay with what the text says and Latter-day Saint family who some of us do, but the inclination is just to get a very basic broad principle and testify of, of, a, of a basic meaning. And there's this sort of, we could learn a lot from maybe from each other, but in this case, let's stick with the text, read it in its context, try to learn about the, the background so that we can have a deeper, deeper meaning. So it was very telling that she sort of explained the entire, like the Mormon experience in her one, um, her one evening with the Latter-day Saint family. What do you think, Leonard? How how uh, can someone like yourself learn from from Latter Day Saints, or what's the value in learning for yourself? I mean, you've been Jewish your entire life, and I know you're not ten years old. You're you're probably what twenty one, twenty two, twenty three. Give or take. Yeah, give, give or take. take. I mean, you've been doing you've been doing this a long time. What what value could you possibly glean from from someone else of another faith? Well, um, let me deflect the question only for a minute. No, Leonard, uh, come on. All right, that's fine. Yes, but it's a simple, it, it, it is a deflectable question, only to point out that um, I've spent a lot of years doing teaching within the Jewish community, in addition to teaching at universities, which have not been Jewish. Um, and one of the things every time I've, I've wanted, more so maybe decades ago, but still, I say, okay, let's do a class on... Christian beliefs, and the, the the first response is maybe among the rabbis or the educators. Wait a minute, our community doesn't know enough about Judaism. We certainly don't have time to teach about somebody else. Okay, that that's one. And and then there's almost it's changed a little bit, but there's almost a sense in which uh, we're we're not retaining our status. I mean, we are a minority. 
Uh, alas, in the United States right now, if you keep up with this kind of thing, you know that anti-Semitic uh, rhetoric and anti-Semitic activities, including bodily harm, are on the rise. Even with that, I would hardly say that I, mean, I would hardly say that I feel like I'm under siege or that my family's under siege. Nonetheless, we are a minority community. That being the case, uh, it seems to me that it's worthwhile for Jews in general to know about the world in which we live. Ours is a Protestant country. I mean, there's just no, there's really no question about it. Right now, I'm, I'm doing uh, I'm, uh, a, uh, for the community, a, a series, Dinosaurs, Dragons, and Demons. Don't ask where the title came from. I like a motivation. <laughs> but one of the things we're looking at is creationism. So I point out in, the, in, the, in, the, in our first discussion, 40% of Americans who are surveyed believe that, the, that God created the world six to 10,000 years ago in literally seven contiguous days of 24, six contiguous days of 24 hours each. Okay, now that is not something that uh, is part of the Jewish tradition. Uh, traditional Jews, uh, we, not, we don't take the Bible, traditional Jews don't take the Bible literally. So that was never been, a, a, it's not really an issue of contention, but that's 40% of Americans who believe that. And it's based almost entirely on some religious perception. We need to be aware of that. We need to be understanding, right? That we're um, up until for several decades, not anymore, uh, efforts made in one school board after another to teach creationism in either in tandem with evolution or instead of it. That's been dealt with uh, more or less. You can't teach creationism in public schools. <laughs> You may or may not be able to do intelligent design, which is a somewhat more broad view. Uh, right now, and I don't want to get into this a big deal, but right now it's, it's uh, critical race theory. Mm -hmm. And it, this is all school board after school board after school board. What's motivating this? Uh, and, you know, we made a mistake, but an understandable one in our education system because we, we don't want to teach people, you know, in the public schools. It, it's not the place to teach people to be religious or what it means to be religious in a particular way. But religion is an important part of life. It's a, it's a motivating factor, even in a, a relatively uh, secular world like ours. It matters. And so it matters. I've been getting just to me. It matters to me that up until I read this book, because I've had the pleasure of being able to read it, as well as editing it, there's so much I didn't I didn't know. I mean, I, like I said, I've had friends who are uh, members of the Latter-day Church. We've collaborated on any number of activities, but there's so much I didn't, I didn't know, and especially going over with Trevin, the matter of authority. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm old enough to remember Ezra Taft Benson. You know, he was, he was a pretty famous, he was a, you know, a, a, in the cabinet and was pretty, and, and that he was a Mormon, of course, the Romneys. But there's so much I, I didn't know, and the, and and uh, exactly what Trevin said. It's, it's as valid for me as it is for anybody else. Um, there are lots of questions which I never even thought of until this this kind of interaction, and it reflects both on my desire to know more uh, about Latter Day Saints, and it it relates. It gives me a broader framework for looking at similar issues within my own faith community. Um, to me, it's a win-win situation. And what's really, uh, sorry, uh, maybe going a little bit long, but this is, again, because people won't be, may well not be aware of this. In terms of, of inner faith um, dialogue, if you will, from, from almost all of history, the history of, of Europe, first with the Roman Catholic Church and later on with some of the Protestant denominations, uh, inner faith dialogue meant that Jews were forced to appear either by ecclesiastical and or royal command to debate with uh, Christians any number of theological points, Jews would always lose. I mean, it wasn't a fair fight, as it were. They would lose. And in losing, uh, under the best case, they lost, and that was it. But that could lead to book burning. It actually led to burning of people. This was serious stuff. We don't want to engage in this kind of stuff, That uh, this kind of interaction. This has changed, of course. And the, the, the phase that I can remember from 
up until, well, I'm actually over 20, much over 21, but you know, up until <laughs> decades ago, we got together and just as, as, as uh, Trevin said so perceptively, we got together and we celebrated our commonalities. Hey man, you know, we really are all alike, uh, which pretty much we just have, uh, but that is, that kumbaya moment isn't it either. It's this, it's this dialogue that we're in that this book uh, in its own way epitomizes. Yes, uh, there are things we agree on, the things we can agree to do, but our, our reasoning isn't always the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, our, our point of view and your point of view are not 100% in agreement, even though they can well be compatible. And this, this allows us to learn about others. And then the, what Trevin was saying again so well, it allows us to learn more about ourselves. So I consider it to be a, a, a win-win situation. Absolutely. There's one question that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall, and I'll ask it of you both now. Uh, you can interpret it however you'd like, and whoever of you wants to go first can certainly go first. But the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? I'll go mishpacha, family. Uh, and family in, 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 in Judaism is not necessarily a matter of being blood relationships. Uh, uh, I came from a very small family. Uh, my wife, uh, whose parents and aunts and uncles were all Holocaust survivors, comes from a, a huge family. And I've been spending this time now in Connecticut. And there are 25 or 30 families here, more or less, uh, my age, a little bit younger, and we get together. And then that's that's the family, the first cousins, the second cousins. But then the, all these other people who we all get together on a Friday night and so forth. And there's this st- strong sense uh, of a family. Yeah. And and it, it can it can show itself in, for example, a Passover Seder or in a Friday night meal or going to synagogue. But it can also show itself like today. Uh, all of our, our family is visiting, uh, and right now, everybody is at the beach, and it's just like, okay, that beach is not a quote-unquote religious activity, but everybody, all the family is going to be that everybody's going to be talking, gossiping, and laughing, and eating, and swapping stories, and so forth. That's it. Well, I would say family, and of course, that's uh, that's uh, obvious for Latter-day Saints, but since Leonard mentioned that, I'll, I'll mention uh, another one that I really love about my religious experience or my faith, and that is as a Latter-day Saint who was trained by Jews to read the New Testament, or to read, to read ancient texts, and to grapple with the different meanings and how the rabbis in the, in the centuries after Jesus, like the, the rabbinic literature is by and large this one big debate on, on every little issue back and forth, and they're even debating God sometimes, like, you know, Rabbi so-and-so and so-and-so, and God says this, but Rabbi so-and-so and so-and-so says this. What I love about my faith, I've been conditioned to to appreciate that approach, is the messiness uh, or ambiguity of within our tradition, and I love it because we have uh, we come out of the, this American frontier, 20th century pre pre industrial age, and and we and that and then we have to jump into the 20th century and now into the 21st century. So we're young, but we have this creative theology that sometimes people think is really weird in the first hundred years. I mean, really, really weird stuff. And then we sort of, you know, transition into kind of a mainstream pro-American religion. And there's some contradiction, there's some ambiguity, but I love it because it brings a lot of different voices to the table. The conferences, the Mormon History Association, we're having a blast. We're, we're and we're, we're really, uh, this allows us to think critically and to engage, and it just sucks people in. Even, even people who have left the, the Latter-day Saint Church are still engaged, still call themselves Mormons or Latter-day Saints, and are adding to the conversation. So that's one aspect. I have holy envy for the Jewish experience, that, that some aspects of it that have that, and uh, it's kind of nice when I see it in our faith. It's not the case with most people. Most people seem to want clear answers. They want the clear story, black and white. This is what God said. This is how the world was created. This is what everything means. But I, I think that uh, I, I don't enjoy that as much as the, the messiness and the wrestle. So 
The name of the book is The Learning of the Jews, What Latter-day Saints Can Learn from Jewish Religious Experience. You'll find a link for it uh, in the show notes in this episode. Uh, Leonard and Trevin, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless, Brother Brent, and Chocolate Cake Bites podcast will be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat on the back.